Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Back Bay Life Science Advisors podcast, the Life Science Report. Today, we'll be talking about medtech investment, and I'm Jonathan Gertler. I'm the CEO and managing partner at Back Bay Life Science Advisors, although today I'm also going to partially be wearing the hat as managing director in BioVentures medtech funds as well. I'm very delighted to have with me my good friend and colleague of many years, Paula Violette, who is the um, managing partner of the medtech efforts at SV Health Partners. Paul, welcome. Great to see you. Thanks, Jonathan. Very good to be with you. And I'm so delighted you could join us. And I almost said my old and good friend, but you're younger than I am. And I thought that would be just a terrible way to start this conversation. <laughs> Not feeling any younger, but maybe chronologically. Uh, well, I think, we're, I think we're all suffering from the same, same endemic pandemic. But anyway, great to have you here. And Paul, I was going to ask if you just spend a couple minutes on your own background for everybody, which has really traversed so many segments in medtech. And then we'll, we'll dig into what we're going to talk about. Oh, sure, Jonathan. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, my my start in MedTech uh, was in 1980. I, after graduate school uh, for business, started uh, really coincidentally in MedTech and uh, worked for, I worked for a total of 29 years as an operator. The first half of, of that was at a couple of large companies in primarily the commercial side of things. And then the second half of that was all at Boston Scientific. Uh, where we saw that company grow pretty substantially over a decade and a half up to its close to its current size. I left when it was about $8 billion and I was the chief operating officer there. And then I uh, parlayed that experience into the investing world, joined as a venture partner at uh, what was then uh, SV Life Sciences. Uh, over the course of the last uh, 13 or 14 years, I've uh, moved from venture partner to partner and then managing partner focused on med tech uh, throughout that period across our uh, the second half of the firm's funds, four, five, six, and now seven, and uh, continue to invest today in, um, in our uh, med tech convergence fund. Terrific. And, and I have to smile because you and I have arrived at this final common pathways through such profoundly different paths. But the overlap is I have to say, I was one of the early investigators for some of the early Boston Scientific endovascular surgical programs. And so I, I, as you know, I came at this from the clinical side of the world and then ultimately got into it through the advisory and the investment side. You came at it from the operating side, a different type of operating than I did. But here we both are in the, uh, with about multiple decades, I won't say the cumulative decades of history, looking at this field. And, and that actually really raises what I think is a, an important historical perspective. I mean, Biotech is raging and has been raging for years, and medtech has often taken a backseat um, to that. Incidentally, when I was at SV years and years ago, it was Schroeder Ventures, so I, I got you beat on that one That's also, right. <laughs> even before That's it right. was SV um, Life Science Advisors. But, but medtech has gotten beaten up to some degree over the years. The returns in the venture models haven't been as good. A lot of funds were not solely dedicated to medtech. But now I think, and especially with the pandemic, but I think the seeds were sown long before then, we're seeing a real resurgence in interest across a whole bunch of sectors and technologies. And I'd love you to comment on what you think is different and what you think is so important to focus on at the moment. Well, I think you're right. First of all, the, the history has been variable for medtech investing. Um, if you tra track the history of life sciences investing, of course, biotech has been really the dominant uh, theme 
as you know, at SB, we also participate in biotech. We participate in the services uh, area as well. All, all of those areas uh, offer a lot of uh, investing versatility and returns potential. MedTech has historically been smaller for us, and I think that's that's about the right proportionality relative to the, the markets. Uh, MedTech is a smaller category. Let, let's be clear, it has grown dramatically over time. It's a much larger set of spaces than it was certainly when I entered, and that's true today. It continues to be a growth uh, area, but it is dwarfed by biotech. It also has been perhaps, although biotech certainly is not uh, without its um, troughs uh, uh, from the investment perspective, uh, it does have the ability to cool down. Um, and, and and we'll see if we may be entering uh, a period like that in the next couple of years as biotech comes off uh, a hot uh, general um, phase. But medtech uh, is, is actually feeling, I think, quite a resurgence. And I would argue that it's a function of a couple of things. Number one, the overall scale of the, of the medtech marketplace is, is quite large now. And as a result, uh, it's, it's really a diversified set of markets. It's, it's capable of weathering, I think, economic uh, storms. It's an area that is thriving now because of technology convergence. We see advances in material science. We see advances in software. We see advances in connectivity, allowing perhaps a revolution in medtech marketplaces, um, some of the more mechanical areas uh, like, uh, let's say, uh, hip and knees or general surgery are being uh, revolutionized with robotics. And of course, with robotics comes uh, a, a revolution of uh, sensors and information flow and data that allows for uh, the creation of intelligence uh, in, in the operating suite. Those sorts of trends, I think, are going to fuel a continuous expansion in the markets so that the category of medtech is no longer dependent upon an implant or a widget or a tool uh, for each procedure. But now uh, the combination of technology, mechanical uh, support, but also data and connectivity that really creates, uh, I think, a, a, virtuous growth, a virtuous growth cycle in medtech. Uh, it's not limited just to the demographic growth, if you will, of underlying procedural rates. Yeah, I think those are great points, Paul. And I'm going to as, as heavily involved in biotechnology as we are at Back Bay also, and, and BioVentures is solely a medtech-focused fund, as you know, I'm going to make a, maybe a bit of a bold statement. You know, the, virtu the, the biologic knowledge that we've gained that has fueled the biotech revolution and also just the capital intensiveness of, of biotech is still ultimately predicated on knowing more and more about smaller and smaller segments of the population. Because disease, as we've now learned to segment it, is very biologically driven in different directions. And you don't have vast populations that are necessarily being focused on by biotechnology companies. Medtech, on the other hand, and you've just spoken to this a great deal, is very much about system solutions. It's about patient solutions. It's about convergence of technologies. But it really also strikes me that we're serving broader swaths of patients. We're doing so with information, with data aggregation with a finer point of delivery, although I, I'd also argue that the mistake that perhaps MedTech Venture made over the years, which I don't think will be made going forward by those groups expert in it, is that it was you know, predicated on one product or bringing one product to market and very much perhaps an incremental improvement. And now what we're really doing in MedTech, whether it's health tech, MedTech, the fusion of materials, the fusion of AI and data management, et cetera, um, is really about serving broader populations with not just incremental change, but really meaningful system change. 
And in, in your health tech focus fund, I would assume that a great deal of that around remote patient monitoring and gathering data and really helping a system manage disease better is, is part and parcel of what you're looking at. And before we get into some of the different aspects of categories of capital, I, I'm wondering if you could comment on that comment as well. Well, I think you're right. I think uh, at the same time, we had to go through the first phase, if you will, before we could get to the to the current one. You agree. You can't have a fully programmable, customizable solution in the form of a implantable defibrillator or in the form of any other uh, device category, unless you have the basic uh, performance first. And so we what we've seen, I think, through the last perhaps 20, 25 years uh, with conventional technologies, non-connected, non-AI driven, is a proliferation of general capabilities, broad product lines, broad uh, tools, broad functionality. And now uh, we can we have those platforms available to us and we can upgrade them, uh, quite frankly, with additional information. We can make uh, hybrid devices that are both mechanical and sensor and uh, connected. And then, th then we can uh, improve their performance over time. We can increase the customization, the segmentation, the stratification of product lines. We can do that in a cost-effective way. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really uh, the re-enablement of medical technologies, taking everything that was packed into those technologies over the last 20, 25 years and adding uh, to, to those now another layer of capability that will uh, allow, I think, medtech to, to keep pace with biotech as we, as we think of, about uh, the customization of therapy, uh, the personalization of medicine. Yeah, I agree. And, and I'd like to focus in on one comment you made relative to sensors and biosensors. And perhaps this is a, it's a bit of a caveat for all of the entrepreneurs out there and the engineers out there that are discerning new ways to measure physiologic data and or other biomarkers, analytes, et cetera. The, the concern I always have, and I see a lot of those business plans as well, is that it's wonderful to be able to sense but if the, sen if the sensor isn't actually providing something that you can act on, whether it's further diagnostic information, prognostic stratification, therapeutic guidance, or a, um, a reaction that is a, an appropriate therapeutic intervention, the sensing alone, the physiologic data alone, in, in my view, aren't sufficient. And I think that's where some of the business plans can fall down, is that it's fascinating engineering, but within a reimbursement heavy and patient utilization heavy world, that information isn't necessarily helpful unless you have an action that goes with it. So, you know, please, please comment. I totally agree, Jonathan. I, well, I think it's, it's both uh, for the patient, it's for the re uh, reimbursement, it's also for the physician. Uh, everything has to be value added. And, and it's not in, in the old days, we would say value added might have led to incremental pricing and value was uh, measured in the form of how much more I can get out of the system. The system is now, as you know, rejecting that uh, thesis and, and really focused on efficiency, cost effectiveness, cost reduction. So when, when I think about added uh, technology, whether it's in the form of sensors or any other data gathering and, and data uh, uh, provision to the, to the provider, that data has to create value in the form of making it easier for me to diagnose, diagnose earlier and faster. Theoretically, those uh, reduce costs by avoiding complications and, and progression, but, but also managing that raw data in, in the form of um, management information for physicians. You cannot 
swamp every physician with a million new data points about every patient, 99.9% uh, .9 of which will be non-value added to the, the, the diagnosis or, or the care recommendation. And ultimately, the payers uh, are not going to pay for any incremental data flow unless it ultimately shows some reduction in uh, cost and some improvement in, in outcomes, material. So the, the system is onto this. They understand that uh, there is the, the risk of just a, a constant sort of supersizing of, of med tech. They wanna be very careful about that. They're gonna be very judicious about it. And that judiciousness is imposed upon the med tech uh, ecosystem and the entrepreneur in the form of reimbursement uh, ceilings. And frankly, physicians that just won't take more information unless it really helps make their uh, tightly squeezed lives and days uh, more efficient and, and more uh, cost effective. Agree. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that as a segue to talk a little bit about classes of capital and, and building up companies and then exiting from companies in our space. But before I go there, just to expand on something you've said, over the years, I've seen, you know, and as a former surgeon and interventionist myself, you know, you come up with inventions, you come up with incremental improvements. I think one of the mistakes that a lot of entrepreneurs as well as investors might make is that you don't match the asset, the product to the capital class properly. So there are a lot of really interesting incremental gains to be made in the med tech and health tech world. It doesn't mean they belong in a, in a venture backed company. They may belong in the skunk works of a big company, or they may belong just as a licensing deal to a big company that can develop them in a capital efficient way and fit it into a bag. So this issue of an incremental change that doesn't add much versus a disruptive change, but where you really have data to support that it's going to be a meaningful disruption that's additive to care and additive to the efficiency of the system. I think that's where the distinctions need to be made in our investment hypotheses, and that's where entrepreneurs and inventors also need to recognize that not everybody needs or should have a venture back company. Um, there are many other ways to get some of these inventions done. So I'll pause if you're, you're right, Jonathan, incremental. No, incremental is kind of a four letter word in venture. Uh, we don't, <laughs> anything that's incremental <laughs> is, it's not for us. Yep. Um, and I think it highlights the, uh, you know, the, the R and the, uh, distinction between research and development. We're, of course, we're not basic researchers in, in the venture world, but we're looking for strides. We're looking for breakthroughs. We're looking for innovation. Once a strategic uh, takes ownership of a, of a platform, they will incrementally improve it uh, across a cadence of uh, every two years with a, a product line uh, extension or modification introduced. That's the way to get two or four uh, incremental market share points. Uh, after you've acquired the company. And that's a way to um, uh, demonstrate to your physicians that you're investing in, in making their lives easier. But that's, that's the role of the development side of the innovation eco ecosystem. And that's really not where uh, venture capital or private equity dollars are, are going. So uh, we, we avoid incremental improvements. We, as far as we're concerned, that's a, that's a reason not to invest in something not to say that there isn't value in those things, but not uh, not in the venture world. And well said. There's certainly value, but you know we have a responsibility as well to invest in the way in which we've been directed to invest, and, and I think that understanding is critical. Let, let's talk for a minute, Paul, about um, what I think is also an interesting phenomenon: med tech. 
for two really interesting phenomena. One is that for years, biotech was very much characterized and still is by structured deals because the milestones of regulatory development um, and advance were, you know, at least clear cut. The scientific proofs of concept were clear cut along the different phases. Medtech historically was much more a cut and dried. When you get to the certain point, we will get acquired. But two things I think have changed, and I'm curious as to your impression as to how this changes the way you invest or just the way you look at the space. One is that we're seeing way more structured deals, of course, in medtech, um, that some of the biotech methods of structuring deals have really leached over into medtech principally. And the other thing which is really nice to see is that for the first time in a long time, albeit at a later stage and with different dollars and with different metrics, the medtech public markets have actually been very good for a long time. And you know, for years, I thought of a medtech IPO solely as a financing event and often out of a desperate measure in a lot of the cycles. But now it's, it's very different and would love your take on it and also love your take as to how that impacts the way you look at companies. Well, it's interesting. Those two things, I think, go together. The IPO market uh, had been quiescent for, for medtech for years. That led to, of course, a buildup of inventory. And so you had at that point, uh, a holding pen of a lot of companies that were revenue stage, were legitimate, were uh, perhaps waiting for the alignment of their approval and reimbursement and then some revenues and the confirmation of their selling model or what have you. Um, and that aligned well. And we had then a, a class of IPOs over the last three or four years. And those IPOs have performed well in the aftermarket. And that, of course, uh, creates uh, a real um, a return for of investor interest and a, and a real recognition of medtech as a space that that they're really looking for. As a result of that, that vi- viable exit uh, beyond M and A, the strategics I think look and say, okay, well, if we're going to move on on uh, assets, we're going to probably have to move earlier because IPO does sit out there as a legitimate competitor to our exit dollars and. If you look at the valuation of some of these companies, they realize if it if a if a company really gets to that tipping point and can be public, it's going to be very difficult for us to compete for that value on M and A. So we're going to have to move earlier. Now, of course, how do we fully value quote unquote fully a deal uh, if we're moving earlier and some of those key milestones have yet to be met? And the answer, of course, is to your point with structure. And so I think at at that point you now have a shift in the leverage of the discussion. The early investors are, yes, they're willing to do a nearly fully valued deal. They're willing to take structure, but structure that favors them, not necessarily structure that favors the buyer, which means the milestone uh, 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 you know, earnouts are earlier, they're, they're shorter, uh, they're more um, within the control of the company. They're not five years of revenues. They're they're upon regulatory approval or upon some other milestone. And so that makes it easier for a board uh, and a group of investors to look at a structured deal and say, you know what, this can deliver us really good value. We don't have to, we may not uh, have the theoretical upside of an IPO, but we don't have to take a lot of risks along the way. It's a, it's a good uh, exit. It's timely. Uh, great IRR, uh, and um, and we can see it here and now, and, and we're not leaving half the value out there for some future deliverable of a strategic that we uh, have to you know severely discount. So I think it's worked out well. I think IPOs have driven structure uh, from the strategics because it's forced them to move early and find a way to put a lot of value on the table, and that's shifted the leverage a little bit more toward the insiders who can negotiate a reasonable milestones over, let's say, a 24-month period and they get a fully valued exit. 
Yeah, two comments, one somewhat facetious, but when I first started working in this world over 20 years ago, and I had just been a, an academic surgeon for all of those years, I asked a partner who's still my partner, Greg Benning, who runs investment banking at Back Bay. I said, so Greg, can you really explain to me what a discounted cash flow is? And he said, more money sooner is better. And it was my first corporate <laughs> finance lesson, and you know it still applies. So I think you know the uh, the more money sooner is better approach makes sense. IPOs are still not secure. Markets can go in all kinds of directions, and for macroeconomic reasons, not just for the reasons of the company alone. Um, but the caveat you came up with, I want to emphasize, which is that structured deals. If you don't have control of the structure as the investor or the company you will get left behind. And so really making certain that all the right counsel is around that structure is critically important. Paul, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but I wanted to talk about one thing that I think is truly interesting as well, which is for years, medtech um, companies and health tech as well, although the, the systems are a little bit different, found their way to Europe because it was so much more attractive and easy to test devices and market devices in Europe than it was in the United States. But the new regs that came in, the MDRs in 2020, really put a, a kibosh on that in many ways. And I think companies are now taking a hard look at the strategy of Europe versus the US. And I'd love you to share your thoughts about the dynamics as you see them with regard to those types of judgments. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the conversion from MDD to MDR has raised the bar. Uh, and in some cases, the bar is now equivalent and maybe even higher in Europe, certainly as it relates to uh, class two devices. And ironically, at the same time, uh, the FDA has, has listened to the marketplace and tried to improve its service, if you will. We've seen that with EFS programs. They've, they've tried to find a way to get uh, novel technologies into the market in the United States earlier. And so you have a responsive FDA trying to move a little bit earlier in the U.S. You have a, an EU that's that's tried to raise its bar in 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 uh, parcel with uh, raising the bar. Uh, we've also seen a uh, consolidation of the um, notified bodies. There aren't enough players to be responsive to companies. So even if you have all the information necessary to go uh, the MDR route, you may not have a notified body that can pay attention to you for the next uh, 12 or 18 months. So it's a, it is a, uh, a shifting uh, of priorities. And it does, not for every company, of course, everyone will look at it uh, based on their own asset and timing and, and market viability. But there is a, a real change in, the, in, in whether or not Europe is an automatic entry strategy. And I think in the combination of low reimbursement availability in Europe and a higher regulatory bar uh, for many companies will now put Europe uh, well behind the U.S. Uh, because with the U.S., you have clarity, you know the regulatory route, you know the time to market, you know the size of the market. Uh, if you can lock in your reimbursement strategy, then you know the value of your offering. Uh, whereas in Europe, I'd say it's a lot more variable. And, um, and of course, that creates uncertainty and uncertainty is a negative for investors. Great. Thanks. And so I'm going to, we're going to close it out in the next couple of minutes. I'm going to put a stake in the ground with a comment, and then I would, would love your response or additional stake in the ground. Um, I think there's going to come a time when with, with all of the incredible and wonderful advance that biotechnology has brought us um, with regard to new drugs and different segmentations of patient care, and that includes some of the diagnostics associated with it, the vaccines, all things we benefit from enormously as a society that as the 
payers consolidate more, as integrated delivery systems consolidate more. MedTech, it's not that biotech will be diminished, but I truly think that MedTech, the resurgence we're seeing will actually continue to grow and it'll be a real shining star for us because we will become systems providers, systems solutions, many ways of changing the way we deliver care. And I personally just have wonderful faith that MedTech and HealthTech is going to carry us forward. Um, Just tell me, Paul, in your closing comments, where you think you're most excited by what's ahead um, and where your concerns are, and then we'll we'll close it out and wish the audience a, a good afternoon or morning, wherever they happen to be. Well, Jonathan, I fully have ascribed to your stake in the ground. I, I do believe, I think it ultimately comes down uh, to the fact that medical technology, whether it's in the operating room or uh, even now with a therapeutic wearable in the home, it's part of the solution. It's part of the cost-effective solution that helps patients avoid lifelong dependency on, on pharmaceuticals. That Let's not let's not forget about how uh, the cost of uh, of uh, drugs has increased dramatically, and is is a big part of driving overall healthcare uh, costs, uh, certainly in the U.S. system. So, I think uh, medtech innovation is um, moving at a faster pace than ever before. The uh, scale of the industry is larger. The innovation uh, process is is more um, concrete. I I just think this space is now. It is set for a very strong 5, 10, 15 uh, year outlook. We're very encouraged by it. We're, we're certainly erring on the side of technology that can dislocate care further from the hospital, more toward the home, take advantage of this connectivity, this convergence of te- technologies, of sensors, of data, of AI, uh, with uh, material science, with miniaturization, with batteries, with um, micro engineered devices. There's just a remarkable uh, outburst of uh, capability in medtech, and I think that's going to fuel uh, innovation and um, hopefully uh, cost-effective care that can be uh, accessed by more and more patients. Thank you, Paul. And, and thank you all. This has been the MedTech Investment episode for Back Bay Life Science Advisors Life Science Report, and I just couldn't be more pleased that Paula Violet, the managing partner of SV Health Partners on the MedTech side, especially has joined us for this. So, Paul, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jonathan. Always a pleasure.